You're listening to Unsung, a crack magazine podcast on Sonos Radio, where the world's greatest artists reveal their heroes who never caught the spotlight. Professor Susan Rogers is one of the world's greatest sound engineers and record producers, and one of the tiny number of women in the profession. If you've ever had a dance floor moment to When Doves Cry or Raspberry Beret by Prince, you can thank Susan. She was the technical force behind albums like Purple Rain, Sign of the Times and Around the World in a Day. Susan grew up in California and moved to Hollywood in the 1970s to pursue work in music studios. Whilst there, she teaches herself electronics, acoustics and magnetism. Next thing, she lands her dream job as Prince's technician, moving to Minneapolis and becoming his in-house sound engineer. Susan was with Prince through the sleepless nights and notorious 24-hour recording sessions of his commercial peak. In 88, she left to produce other artists, resulting in some of the biggest hits of the 90s. She then took her earnings and went back to school, finally graduating from high school aged 44 and then getting a PhD in music and psychology. Susan's unsung choice is a band she produced, who she felt never reached the heights they deserved. Gegita are the jazz, folk, experimental indie duo Tommy Jordan and Greg Kirsten. The pair released three albums over seven years on David Byrne's label, Loakabop, the first two of which were produced by Susan. Susan speaks to journalist and broadcaster Chal Ravens about deep pockets, value systems, and the neurobiology of creativity. Great. Hi, Susan. Hi, Chal. I'm looking forward to this. So the act that you've chosen for Unsung, it's not just any old band that you're a fan of. Um, You did actually work with them, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, so for anyone who may have been watching MTV in the mid-90s, Gegitar might be a familiar name, particularly for their song, Whoever You Are, which was a crossover hit in 96. Um, And that song comes from their second album, Sacred Cow. When did you first enter the orbit of Gagitar? I think the year was 92. So I was out in Los Angeles and I was taking a meeting at Warner Brothers Records. And uh, that's what record makers did in between albums is you'd go make the rounds and you see who's got an album coming up and you try to pitch yourself to be the producer or the mixer or the engineer on that album. And I was in the offices of Kevin Lafferty. I think that was his name. And at the end of our meeting, he said, there's something here that's really interesting. He said, they wouldn't be able to hire you because they don't have any money. They're on <laughs> David Burns, um, Lawaka label. It's just a little boutique label. So they they really kind of have to make bedroom records. They can't afford to uh, hire any big name people, but uh, it's musically interesting. So check it out. And he played me a couple of songs, demos by this band Gagita. And as soon as I heard it, I immediately I thought, 
those guys know something about music that I don't know. And they know something that I need to know. There was something about about the way they constructed music that made me recognize that's the missing link for me. That's the piece of my musical education that I don't have and that I need to have. And I told Kevin right away, I said, oh, oh I'd be very, very interested in working with these guys, no matter the cost. Um, can you please put me in touch with them? Uh, he gave my phone number to Tommy Jordan. Tommy was the ta of Geggy Ta, and Geg was Greg Kirsten, who's quite famous now now as a record producer, but back then, you know, I think Greg was 22 and Tommy was just a few years older. And Tommy and I had a two-hour phone conversation and we're still talking. We're still very, very close friends. We never did have big budgets. So we were making bedroom records back then in the early 90s, as is so common today. But those were all three classic bedroom records. You produced just the first two, right? I worked with them as a co-producer. They produced along with me as a co-producer, as an engineer on the first two. Then on the third one, they were poised for bigger success. So the label thought that it might be wise if they branched out and they worked with a different producer. (laughs) So uh, after pushing back a little bit, I kind of wanted to prove to the label that... um, you know, you were wrong. But I wanted to prove that quietly. I went off and had the most successful year of my entire career. And uh, Gagita actually broke up after that third record. It's simply the idea just didn't work. Uh, All the pieces just weren't in place. If you were describing Gagita to someone who hadn't heard them before, how would you briefly describe them? They're uh, a duo. And Their records are experimental in nature in the sense that they are curious how far you can pull music apart and have it still cling together and be musical. It was said about Tommy and Greg that Greg wanted to be known, but Tommy wanted to matter. And and that's ultimately why their, their partnership broke up, because Greg wanted to go on to more commercial success, and he did. But Tommy wanted to change music in some way, to spawn some imitators and to, to make a contribution, a unique contribution to the conversation, the ongoing conversation that is music. And he did. They appealed to two different types of listeners who are polar opposites. They appealed to kids and critics. (laughs) Little kids, they don't care what others are going to think about them. Little kids were into Gagita. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, you have the critics. Critics can and should and must look deeper than the surface elements into the impulses. What's driving this music? What is this artist trying to say? Critics could read the depth of the lyricism in Tommy's lyrics. They could read the skill, the deep, deep skill, the jazz training that Greg had on piano. And they, they, could, they could read and detect the layers and layers of skill and genius that were actually present in their work. Its true gems lie layered and buried in in the lyrical content and in in the harmonies and in in the choices of rhythms and layers and layers of meaning in their work. I'm dreaming that I'm awake, listening to music that's repetitive. 
about about Gaggy Ta that changed my life is that their music was more intellectually satisfying to me than a lot of other music I worked with. I uh, I mean I mean ideas that that were mind blowing. Tommy Jordan, for example. Let's start with the lyric writing. His girlfriend Cheryl was a, a was in college, and she asked him if he would compose and record a piece of music for her. The theme of this piece of music was her menstrual cycle. <laughs> so she was asking <laughs> poor Tommy to write a twenty minute piece of music on her menstrual cycle. <laughs> and Tommy, being a, being an artist, he was he was a good sport. But the poor thing wasn't getting enough sleep. And uh, he had it. It was so intense. He had a dream one night that he was a woman, and that he dreamt that he was having a, a period. And oh, then the dream shifted as dreams do, and he dreamt that he was pregnant. And he woke up, and he went right to pen and paper, and he wrote, "I'm dreaming that I'm awake, listening to music that is pet repetitive, surrounded by world leaders, babies in their bellies. <laughs> They take off their pants, but I am only dreaming." And blah. Blah, blah blah, and he wrote a song called "Ovaries Ease," and it's on their first record. Ovaries, women's eggs. Z's like sleeping. Ovaries, like people like their eggs in the morning. Layers of meaning in that poetry. It starts with a, a man in bed. That was Greg snoring. Hung a microphone over him and captured the snoring. And then, then there's one of the records that was repetitive. Was they had pressed a 45 of one of their one of their earlier recordings. And we had a 45 of it, and it was on the turntable. And, The man hears the alarm. He gets up. He puts the needle on the record, and then he goes in. And he turns on the shower to take a shower. He slams the shower door, and the record starts to skip, and skip, and skip as the man is in the shower. And from that skipping record, it forms the bed track for the song where Tommy is singing, "I'm dreaming that I'm awake and listening to music that it's re that's repetitive." That's a level of work and a level of thought that I find more delightful than anything, more than than the money I might have made. Uh, I, I gave up a lot of projects while I was working with them just for the satisfaction of working on tracks like that. How long did the first album take to make? Oh well, we had a budget to make a record in two weeks, and it took us nearly a year. <laughs> nearly <laughs> a year. So we worked in Tommy's house in uh, Pomona, California, and um, he had a house that belonged to his grandparents. And we took one of the bedrooms and we made it into a studio. And uh, we didn't have very much money, so the console that we had was a little 16-input Mackie console. It's about the same size as the iMac that I'm looking at right now and where most consoles were as big as, you know, living room sofas or dining room tables. This was very, very small. Uh, we had 16 inputs. We had a 16-track analog tape machine 
and we had, um, when I think back on it now, boy, I'd love to have that machine. Uh, we had a, a handful of microphones and some mic cables and direct boxes and a sampler. And we set up and worked in Tommy's house. No acoustical treatment or anything like that. No large monitors. And we made that record um, over a period of many, many months. They were so creative that unlike other artists, although very, very similar to Prince, the ideas just kept coming and coming and coming. And they always begged, at the very least, trying out. Since I, I left the music business and earned my PhD, I've, I've done some research into the neurobiology of creativity. And I can say that the two most creative people that I've ever worked with, the two hyper-creatives that I've known were Prince and Tommy Jordan of Gagita. There's a, there's a certain profile, a certain cognitive profile that we see in folks who are hyper-creative. The ideas just keep coming and coming and coming and coming. And even after you're done, when you're ready to print a mix for both Prince and Tommy Jordan, you might hear, wait, <laughs> and there'd be another idea coming in the pipeline. I find that fascinating. I mean, one thing that springs to mind is in what way might that be to someone's detriment as an artist? But I also wonder if you think that there are ways that, let's say, medium creative people can push towards becoming more creative if you think there are techniques that people can kind of hone. Yeah, I'll take the first part of that question first. People who are highly creative have those pluses in that they think of things, many, many, many more things than, than uh, others don't. And this can be creativity in the arts or in mathematics or in, in any, any number of fields. It tends to be socially isolating. It also is quite risky because the folks who are hyper-creative don't have the same inhibitory circuits that most of us have. They tend to think that any idea is a good idea, if they thought of it. And sometimes these ideas can be bad ideas. So they tend to have reduced inhibition, but that puts them in risky situations. They tend to be exhausting for other people. They tend to, consequently, they tend to be um, socially isolated. Sometimes they get labeled as just being difficult to work with, or just plain nuts. I, I definitely saw that with Tommy. His label considered him difficult to work with, and the poor thing, I, I watched it firsthand. He wasn't being difficult. He was just having more ideas than, than they were used to, used to seeing from artists. So yeah, there, there's a downside to being a hyper-creative. It's, it's overly stimulating, and it it can be exhausting. And I, I heard both Prince and Tommy say something similar, which is, I'm going to paraphrase both of them, but what they essentially said was, I wouldn't be with me in my own head if I could help it. The other part of your question, can we learn to become more creative? Yes and no. So yes, in that you can optimize the creativity that you do have. No, in the sense that hyper-creativity, hyper-creativity, the kind that's really rare, involves some circuits in the brain. And those circuits are essentially gates or breaks. So when most of us are on a creative project, whether it's writing or painting or whatever it is we're doing, the first thing we need to do is we've got a problem to solve. 
I've got a problem to solve. How is this chapter going to end? How is this lyric going to express this idea? And it's really hard work. And you open up those gates and you let those creative ideas come. But as soon as you've got an idea that you think is a good one, what we do is we shut the gates and we get to work on the craft. We move from art to craft so that we can actually make things. But for folks who are hyper-creative, as soon as they make something or while they're making something, the gates don't close all the way and the ideas keep coming and coming and coming. So they have to work really fast in order to capture these ideas. That's why when I was with Prince, he worked all night. We didn't stop until the record was mixed and done. Most people don't work like that. But he would take a song from its original idea to final mix in one long 24-hour session. Same thing with Tommy Jordan. Greg and I would leave at midnight. Tommy would stay up all night. And we'd come in the morning and he would have still been up. He's still making tracks and sampling. So back to uh, the question I was supposed to answer. If you have a, a moderate amount of creativity, can you make yourself more creative? What you can do is recognize the conditions under which you are creative. I talk with my students in terms of the seasons of your creativity. So some folks are most creative in the winter of their lives when they are cold and isolated and depressed and lonely they get to writing. Other people, in fact, the majority, are most creative in the summer of their lives when everything is going well. When things are going well, that's when a lot of people are more creative. Or the springtime of your life. Are you most creative in a new situation? You've just moved to a new city or you started at a new school or a new job. So if you recognize the conditions under which you are most creative, you can set yourself up so that you have more of that. <laughs> I'm glad the answer is tentative yes, you can be more creative. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a qualified yes, because you're not going to be able to give yourself the brain circuits that others might have, but you can take what you do have and you can set yourself up so that those, those work most efficiently. Don't close the door. I was reading a little bit about the kind of music that you that you fell in love with as a child. And it's soul music, it's funk, it's Al Green and Cy Stone and that kind of lineage, I guess, right? Mm. And then having worked uh, with Prince for many years, who was, you know, going way past any kind of genre division anyway, I was just wondering how it was to work with this kind of band who I assume had quite different uh, cultural kind of reference points to you? I mean, was there a kind of culture clash getting in the studio with this band of indie rockers, essentially? Yeah, and therein lies why it worked for me. Um, I was into and have always been into soul music, but I've discovered as a record maker that sometimes when you bring 
as all record makers do, you bring your personal library into the studio with you. And not only your library of all the music you've listened to, but your sensibility. You bring in with you what you want to be hearing. And what I wanted to hear mostly all the time was a deep pocket. I, I, I needed those drums and bass to just to just just have a certain pocket for me personally so that the music would feel satisfying. When you bring that into the room, you're taking their alternative indie sensibilities, their lyrics, their their timbres, their layering, their arrangements, and you're adding this soul bottom. So uh, working with Gegita allowed me to expand their palette, and they certainly expanded mine. More than anything else, Tommy and Greg taught me to ask the question of what music is. What makes something musical? When you add an overdub, when you choose a timbre, when you when you choose a part or you choose a harmony, what are you doing? Uh, they had lots and lots of musical training. They were highly, highly trained musicians. But when they approached their first album... What they attempted to do was to forget all that and to dig as deep as they could into the heart of what makes something musical. So their records featured birds and other animal samples. And and um, on the first album, there's a song called Alleluia, and the lead line is the sound of a garage door opening. It's a squeaky garage door that caught Tommy's ear as being musical, and he, he captured it, you know, with a little Walkman, put it in a sampler, and we used that. Alleluia. They taught me to expand my, my listening such that I heard music outside of music, so that I heard a bigger picture of what music was. That changed my life. It changed my life. It changed my career. I love that phrase deep pocket as well. That's and that's very evocative of of I guess something that is a kind of sonic signature of yours possibly if if you had to say that. I mean I was wondering if you could pinpoint something on those Gaggy guitar records that's definitely coming from your ear. Would it be that? Would it be like the drums or how, where do we hear you on the record most clearly, do you think? I think bass and drums probably be the place where um, my strength lies. I'm a non-musician, so I'm never going to pick up a guitar, go to a piano and and say, play this inversion or, or, or uh, use a downstroke, not an upstroke on this rhythm guitar. That's just not going to be where I make a contribution. But I am going to say if the groove isn't working, I am going to say if the bass part needs to be simpler or, or more, needs to be busier or more syncopated, I've got an ear for that. Another thing that I have an ear for and a deep appreciation of is is lyrics. I'm I'm an avid reader, and Tommy was a, a brilliant lyricist. I made a lot of contributions as to helping him choose his his lyrics, and also helping to um, how shall I put this? Helping to 
condense the musical message. That's something that all record producers should do. They don't all do it. But when we put a record out there in the world, the artist is um, is sharing his or her value system, sharing what, what matters to them, letting people know, here's what I think about, here's what I'm worried about, here's what stresses me out, here's what I love. Especially on a debut album, that's extremely important. People are going to make up their minds who you are and whether or not you're the right artist for them based on on the lyrical content quite heavily. So yeah, I, I made a lot of contributions that way as well. I was wondering about value system. It's quite an interesting way of thinking about music, maybe from a less technical perspective, even though the role of the engineer and the producer is a technical one in some ways. You're saying you don't have standard musical training. Do you think that you hear things in a different way to other engineers, other producers? Or actually, perhaps it's kind of typical for producers to not have that type of musical training in some ways. A lot of producers are non-musicians, especially back in the golden era of the 50s and 60s when they started as record executives. So they would be they would be folks who just loved music, like a lot of DJs and folks like that who don't make music themselves, but whose job it is to be part of the delivery system that gets music into the hands of the consumer. So folks like like me would become DJs or record executives, or some of us would become record makers, would become engineers to contribute on the technical side. And if we got lucky, maybe eventually become producers. The capacity to listen as a non-musician, as a fan, first and foremost, is really helpful for record producers. And now that I teach students at Berkeley, um, students who want to be artists in their own right, I can help them recognize um, when they have written music that connects with others and when their music is, um, lyrically at least, just too navel-gazing, just too self-absorbed, just too self-interested to actually be of be of use to anyone else. Record listeners are selfish. We want music to be about us. We want it to be for us. So we want to have that psychic journey when we listen to music. We want to go into our fantasies. We want what our appetites are craving. For some of us, that's a, a deep rhythm, a deep pocket. For others, it's a gorgeous melody. For some, it might be harmony. For some, it might be a lyrical message or just the expression of passions. Um, that's what we're craving. So lyrics have to recognize that mere diary entries won't connect with others. Is that a kind of philosophy that you have developed or kind of realised latterly? Or is that something that, for example, you would have actually said to artists who you're working with, like Gagitaro, like Prince? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we talk about it with artists. That's part of what you do as a producer in the studio is you talk about what are we doing and why and for whom and will this work? And as a producer, you, you have to be able to say why. It's, um, it's not enough to be able to get on that talk back and say that vocal performance was no good or that, that, that drum beat won't work. I mean, who, who's going to respond to that? You have to be able to 
justify your thinking and you have to be able to say the reason I think that beat is is not right for this is I don't think we want the accents to be on the one and the three. I think it'll feel a lot better and it'll it'll work better with the bass part if the accents are on the two and the four. That sort of thing. That's part of the art of record production is you're the interpreter for the audience. You're saying, yeah, I know what you meant to say, but here's how it's being received. Olivia, I just want to drill down a little bit into the the concept of this uh, podcast, which is the the idea of being unsung and and what that means exactly. And I just wanted to kind of loop back to ask you to speak a little bit more about why it is you think Gegita are unsung. Why don't they have a bigger profile than they deserve? That's a almost a philosophical question in a way. Gegita didn't have enough pressure that would constrain it such that its surface form would be simpler and accessible. There was uh, The degree of novelty in Gagita's music was higher than the degree of novelty you would find in most hit records. Now, all hit records have some novelty. Gagita, they tip the scales with too much. The degree of complexity that they put in their music, it, was, it tended to be more complex than simpler pieces that, that would become hits. But a, a more philosophical answer would probably be that people often get what they want. Whether they know they want it or not, they make choices that'll get them what they want. And in the case of Tommy Jordan and Greg Kirsten, both men ultimately got what they wanted. Greg wanted to be very successful. He wanted to be very successful and make a lot of money. And he did. And he is. He's, he's, he's one of the, the most esteemed producers working today. Greg got what he wanted. Tommy got what he wanted in that he made a contribution to the music and uh, the music of the 90s. And he expressed what he wanted to express musically. That was a, a, a powerful lesson for me that ultimately... Well, like that saying, you know, be careful what you wish for, because quite often we do get it. We we drive ourselves toward what we want the most. So, no, they, they were not more successful because at that time, collectively, they didn't want it. One guy did, the other guy didn't. Susan, that's a mind-bogglingly good answer, as were all of your answers. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, fabulous. I learned a lot and um, they, they are deep insights. I'm going to take deep pocket away with me as a phrase now. <laughs> this is the age of communication. How come I feel lost in isolation? My brain is a dumb submarine. 
dumb submarine, dumb submarine, my brain is a dumb submarine, never descending into the ocean, into the ocean. been listening to unsung a crack magazine podcast on sonos radio where the world's greatest artists reveal their heroes who never caught the spotlight thanks to our guest susan rogers it was hosted by chal ravens and produced by me eliza lomas this episode was mixed by becky street the series leads are duncan harrison and luke sutton to keep crack magazine independent visit crackmagazine.net forward slash support.